59, the last half, beginning with verse 14 today as we continue on through Isaiah. As you're turning there, allow me to remind you, as I have in the last several weeks, that, the, that through, the rec- <clears throat> through the record of his ministry in Israel, especially in his interactions as recorded, his interactions with Ahaz and Hezekiah as recorded in his ministry, Isaiah has demonstrated the problem of our stubborn and steadfast rebellion. That is an uncomfortable truth, I recognize, but it is, in fact, a necessary diagnosis. It is worth noting that that diagnosis was itself quite offensive, and so it was violently opposed, leading, tradition tells us, even to Isaiah's own martyrdom. His diagnosis, however, wasn't the entirety of the message. It wasn't even the main of the message. It presented the necessary backdrop and the necessary, if you will, condition for the real substance of the message, namely the latter half of his book, which focuses on the double comfort of the holy God's entirely unexpected and unimaginable plan to treat our problem. Our natural expectation is that faced with our stubborn, treacherous rebellion, that a holy God, when faced with that, would simply destroy the traitor. This makes sense to us. It sounds reasonable to us. In fact, it's what we see happening among kings of the world throughout the ages. But that is, in fact, not what happens. Rather than destroying us, that is, the comfort of his restraining mercy, he actually works to cultivate in us a heart for obedience, which is the second comfort of his grace. And so, in this way, he makes peace in his world in the very midst of his enemies. One way to understand the last ten chapters of Isaiah, where we find ourselves today, is that to, is to see them as a sort of sketch of how this holy God will go about establishing his peace upon the earth as it is in heaven, upon, among such a people as we prove ourselves to be. In looking at it from this vantage point, we have seen that, in the end, God will establish his peace by the exercise of his justice. And that he will establish his peace not merely in some localized way among a particular kind of people, but it will be manifest among a cosmic, comprehensive, worldwide people Because it is a cosmic, comprehensive, worldwide peace. And that such peace we have seen comes by understanding and by repentance and by delighting and by practicing that delight. So today we come to Isaiah chapter 59 beginning with verse 14. Read with me. 
Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands, he will render repayment. And so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore. Brothers and sisters, this is the good word of the Lord to us, his people. Let us go to him, therefore, in prayer. So, Father, we come and we pray that as we open this, your word, we will hear you speak. Grant us courage to hear you. Grant us humility to hear you. By your grace and mercy, protect us from error and feast us upon the wonders and the mysteries of your abounding love for us through your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Romans, that great um, letter of God's abounding love for us, in the person of Jesus Christ, as declared in the gospel, says right close to the beginning that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. It's a pretty strong statement to be found in a book declaring the good news of God's love. The wrath of God? I thought he was the loving God, we might say. Some years ago at a church service, I heard a preacher, this is in the um, mid-80s. So for those of you who are aware, just think late 60s, 70s, now we're in the mid-80s. And 
the title of his sermon and the theme of his sermon is God is wrath. A jarring topic indeed. After all, isn't it John who tells us that God is love? Was it a fair topic? Was it a fair title? Was it a fair declaration? We understand what he was trying to say. That in fact the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. And there's a lot of ungodliness against which to reveal his wrath. But is it fitting for a God of love to express such wrath. Does God take pleasure in expressing that wrath? Yes. And I hope that that will have caught your attention long enough to bear with me to the end so that you understand. Why would a loving God take pleasure in expressing his wrath? Because, you see, he sees us as abandoned and vulnerable sheep without a shepherd. He breaks out, because he sees that, he breaks out in a sort of mama bear loving wrath against all that which threatens us, which snatches us, which robs us, which strips us, which violates every facet of our being and strips us and leaves us to die. Whenever he finds and wherever he finds is the enemy of our souls lurking, in whatever dark corner of our hearts or dark alleys of our lives, he breaks out in a fierce and jealous loving rage to destroy it. So great is his love for us. So who is that enemy? What is that enemy? And perhaps some of you are saying, man alive, if such an enemy is prowling about seeking to destroy me, where is that enemy? We see that the enemy is that which displeases the father. The second part of verse 15, the Lord saw this. And it displeased him. The language there is not, oh, that's sad. Oh, well, that's unfortunate. The language there is of a gut-wrenching displeasure. It's a violation of all that he has made good. It's a violation of his shalom. It's a violation of his justice and righteousness and truth. It's not merely an unfortunate turn of events. But it is a studied 
and practiced and systematic violation of all that he created that was good, of his righteousness and justice and truth. You see it there beginning in verse 14. Justice is turned back. There, is, there are no moral absolutes. Therefore, there's no possibility of justice. Do you see what's happening there? Justice is turned back because the possibility of justice is rendered implausible. It's rendered absurd. And we see that even in our own day. Wild and crazy lawsuits that actually make it to court because we have no standard by which to judge the absurdity of the cases. When truth and morality is determined by majority vote, the possibility of justice evaporates. And so justice, the Lord looks and sees, has been turned back. And a sort of parallel development, righteousness has been exiled. Righteousness stands far away. The very moral convictions and moral conversation and moral behavior that actually may give witness to the possibility of justice is actually mocked and therefore marginalized. Righteousness has been exiled, has been sent out of the city, thrown in the trash heaps. But not only is it justice turned back and righteousness been exiled, but truth itself is crumbling. Truth crumbles in the public squares. Truth stumbles in the public squares. And so that it is impossible to live and walk uprightly. In fact, to resist evil by walking uprightly in this context is to expose oneself to danger. If I actually take a stand here, I will lose my job. If I take a stand here, I will lose my property. If I take a stand here, I will lose my livelihood, perhaps even my life. Justice and righteousness and truth have evaporated. You think about this in terms of Genesis 19. Do you remember the angels had come to Abraham and they were on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah? And you remember what happened. The angels go, they visit Lot, and the men of the city come and demand that he send them out so that they may have their way with him. Lot, the righteous one, resists the evil. And he loses just about everything. Or you can think of Judges 19. 
Remember the story of the Levite and his concubine that were returning from Bethlehem? Remember, this is in Judges, in which is the account of the season of Israel's life in which all men did what was right in their own eyes, as opposed to doing what was right in the Lord's eyes. And as the society continued to to crumble and to evaporate around them. We have this story in Judges 19 of the Levite and his concubine returning from Bethlehem and overnighting in Gibeah, a town in the territory of Benjamin. This is not foreign territory. This is territory that belonged to God's people. It was in the heart of God's promised land. And as they lodged there, the men of the town demanded that the host of the Levite and his concubine send them out so they may have their way with them. But instead, in an effort to minimize the sin in such a horrible condition, they send out their young daughters and the concubine. You know the rest of the story. You see, the enemy of God and of God's people is not other people or those bad circumstances out there. It's not those Republicans who can't get it right or the Democrats who can't get it right. And it's certainly not the libertarians who might be able to get it right. And yes, I intentionally bring politics here. Because it is so easy for us to think that the enemies of God and of God's people are on the other side of the aisle. Although it's true that we often find that the enemy of God and of God's people makes his presence powerfully known in the presence of other people and circumstances from the other side of the aisle. This is why it's so easy for us to conclude that it must be them that's the problem. Rather, though, it's important to remember from Genesis to Revelation that Scripture is written and inspired by the living God through His people, for His people. It's written to you and to me. It's not written to them. It's written to us. Though the enemy, though the enemy of God is is anything, the enemy of God is anything, brothers and sisters, feeling, thought, word, or deed that denies or robs or otherwise seeks to diminish the life-giving glory of God's love. Consider, for example, the real or the merely functional resistance that we have to or even the rejection of moral absolutes. Not just them, but us find ourselves feeling or thinking or perhaps even saying, well, that may be good for you, but not for me. And so we erode the possibility that there is a moral absolute 
to which we all must bow our knees. Or we find ourselves feeling, thinking, and saying, you have no authority to tell me what to do. I'm my own man. I'm my, I'm my own woman. As though the only moral absolute is that which I declare to be so. Or think about the real or merely functional way that we marginalize the righteousness of God by mocking, ridiculing, grumbling, complaining, and gossiping about those we deem to be poor or somehow a hindrance, a bother, or an irritant to us in the fulfillment of God's dreams for us. Or the real or merely functional participation in dismantling truth by not opposing error. You see, as Edmund Burke suggested, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. It'll pass. And when we recognize that this is the enemy, it slowly begins to dawn on us that we are more actively complicit in Jerusalem's destruction and the destruction of those around us than we are often willing to recognize and admit. As the characters in that old comic strip Pogo declared, we have met the enemy and he is us. Or as G.K. Chesterton suggested, as we suggested last week, in response to the question, what is wrong with the world? I am. For since the days of the garden, you see, we have taken in the enemy of our souls and he lurks quietly in the dark recesses of our homes. He lurks quietly and comfortably and quite contentedly in the deep recesses of our hearts, which is why, as Augustine suggested it, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And it's why Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things. This is the evil that displeases the Lord, that violates and vandalizes his people in his land. What does he take pleasure in? He takes pleasure in upholding his righteousness, in putting on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head, the garments of vengeance for clothing. Verse 17. To execute his righteousness, to clearly reveal and visibly establish in his world, among his people, a plumb line of his own righteousness a standard by which all can see and so walk with confidence in the land and in the city and walk with skill in the ways of his righteousness. To, to bring salvation 
rescuing those who by virtue of this enemy that we have just described have been robbed and beaten and left for dead on the margins of society. And the pleasure of God is to do this by donning vengeance. Rising up to defend his world and his people against the ravages of their enemies. Wherever that enemy may be found. Which, when we remember that he lurks within the deepest and darkest recesses of our hearts, can be really painful. Which raises the question, is it even possible to destroy the enemy of our souls and our lives, even as he's lurking in the deepest and darkest recesses of our own hearts? Is it possible to destroy him without destroying us? Now think about that. We're all aware of doctors who discover a deadly cancerous tumor in someone. And when they go to operate with high hopes, perhaps, that it will be a minor surgery, they open the patient up and they discover that the cancerous cancer has so hopelessly intertwined itself among other vital organs, nerves, and blood vessels that they can't possibly hope to extract the cancer without killing the patient. Some of us in this room have actually had that conversation with doctors. And through grief and groaning, they suture back up the incision and they come out to the family and they say, I'm sorry, we can't do it. Which is what raises the question in our mind. As intertwined as the enemy of our soul is, in the inner recesses of our hearts, is it possible to destroy that enemy without destroying us? Can it be done? If so, how will he go about accomplishing this destruction of our enemy? without destroying us in the process. He says, and it doesn't appear to be too delicate of an operation. Look, verse 18 and following. According to their deeds, he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, even to the coastlands, he will render repayment. That doesn't sound like a carefully calibrated wrath to me. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west, his glory from the rising of the sun. He will come like a rushing stream. The wind of the Lord drives it. But it's in that next expression that you begin to realize that the power and the force of this wrath is carefully, exquisitely calibrated because it comes in the hands of a Redeemer. Verse 20. The Redeemer is the one who comes and he executes this exquisite dance 
of the Father's love and grace in executing his wrath against the enemies of his people. We see it a little bit more clearly when we look at verse 21. Notice this. If you have your Bibles open, look here. And even if you have a pencil or a pen, circle these things and make note of them. Notice this. Verse 21. As for me, that is, this is God the Father speaking through Isaiah. So the me here is God the Father. This is my covenant with them. Okay? So there's something going on between God the Father and them, a third party, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, my words that I have put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring. Your mouth, your mouth, your offspring, my spirit that is upon you, that is all second person singular. That is not, as we like to say here in the South, y'all. It is not a plural. Yahweh, the Lord, is speaking to a specific person. Identified a verse earlier as the Redeemer. So notice this. Yahweh, because of his great love for them, is speaking explicitly and carefully to one who is the Redeemer. You see, another way to say it is, in faithfulness to my promises to them, I call you out. Isaiah is echoing that great priestly commission of Israel in Exodus 19, which can be summarized in this way. Because the nations are mine, I have called you to be my priests. That is to say, to bear my name before them and to bear their name before me. Because the nations are mine. Of course, this is Isaiah's version of John 3.16. For God so loved them that he sends his Redeemer. This substitutionary pattern we see throughout Scripture. And we misunderstand the gospel if we lose sight of that pattern. So also here in our lives, we see the same pattern in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, so I send you to them. Because of my love for Flintstone, I send you. Do you see, the Lord here has a great love for his people, according to which and for which he calls out and appoints a specific redeemer to rescue them from their enemies. That pattern that we see unfolding in which God's wrath is expressed with comprehensiveness and careful calibration through the redeemer is the way that, in fact, God's love is made visible and powerful.
powerful and effective to make all things new. This is what is involved in gospel rescue and gospel restoration. You see, the wrath of God is a function of his loving holiness. It is the mama bear rising in him to defend his beloved children from their enemies that lurk within their hearts. It is the good and the wise and the trustworthy creativity of desperate love that formulates and executes a plan by which the enemy of our soul is rooted out and destroyed while leaving us not only alive, but increasingly alive. That's good news. That's the good news of God's wrath poured out upon all ungodliness. So great is his love for me that he sent a redeemer to root out the enemy of my soul. Whether it's rooting out all the ungodliness within me or in the people around us or in the world around us or lurking within the deepest recesses of our own hearts. Notice what happened. He who had no sin took upon himself our sin. So that we who had been so deeply entangled and enmeshed in and by our own sin and continue to struggle with the lingering effects real and imagined of the enemy of our soul. He who had no sin took upon himself our sin so that we could taste and see, celebrate and participate in that love. One with another. The wrath of God exercised as a function of his steadfast, abounding, and powerfully jealous love in Jesus is good news, brothers and sisters, as disruptive and as uncomfortable and as painful as that might be. It's good news indeed for those of us who have and continue to struggle under the guilt and the shame of our own sin that by the power of God's loving wrath against the enemy of our souls, he is clearly revealed and visibly established in the life of his Redeemer, the reign of his peace upon the earth as it is in heaven. We have been rescued. We have been freed. We have been healed. We have been equipped to live the lives we were created for and now for which we have been redeemed. The wrath of God is good news, brothers and sisters, because it roots out the enemy of our souls and makes us new. Let us go to him, therefore, with thanksgiving and praise. So, Father, we come and we marvel at the bounty of your steadfast love, the power of your steadfast love at work throughout this world by which you run down and you trap, and you pursue, and you extract the enemy of our souls from our very hearts. And not in a way that leaves us crippled, but in a way that leaves us dancing as the living among the dead through your Son, Jesus Christ.